Section 12 of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter 8. The Coup d'État. Quote, in voting for Louis Napoleon, says Allison, the French rural population understood that it was voting for an emperor and for the repression of the clubs in Paris. It seemed to Frenchmen in the country that they had only a choice between Jacobin rule by the clubs or Napoleonic rule by an emperor. So, though Louis Napoleon, when he presented himself as a presidential candidate, assured the electors, quote, I am not so ambitious as to dream of empire, of war, nor of subversive theories. Educated in free countries and in the school of misfortune, I shall always remain faithful to the duties that your suffrages impose on me. End quote. Public sentiment abroad and at home, whether hostile or favorable, expected that he would before long make himself virtually, if not in name, the Emperor Napoleon. Indeed, the army was encouraged by its officers to shout, Vive l'Empereur! and Vive Napoleon! And General Changarnier, for disapproving of these demonstrations, had been dismissed from his post as military commander at the capital. He was forthwith, as we have seen, appointed to a military command in the confidence of the assembly. By the autumn of 1851, Louis Napoleon had fully made up his mind as to his coup d'état, and had arranged all its details. He had five intimates who were his counsellors, de Morny, de Maupas, de Persigny, Fleury, and General Saint-Arnaud. De Morny has always been reputed to have been the half-brother of Louis Napoleon. In 1847 he lived luxuriously in a small hotel in the Champs-Élysées, surrounded by rare and costly works of art. He had then never been considered anything but a man of fashion, but he proved well fitted to keep secrets, to conduct plots, and to do the cruelest things in a jocund, off-hand way. Saint-Arnaud's name had been originally Jacques Leroy. At one time, under the name of Florival, he had been an actor in Paris at one of the suburban theatres. He had served three times in the French army, and been twice dismissed for conduct unbecoming an officer. His third term of service for his country was in a foreign legion, composed of daredevils of all nations, who enrolled themselves in the army of Algeria. There his brilliant bravery had a large share in securing the capture of Constantine. He rose rapidly to be a general, was an excellent administrator, a cultivated and agreeable companion, perfectly unscrupulous, and ready to assist in any scheme of what he considered necessary cruelty. Fleury, who had been sent to Africa to select a military chief fitted to carry out the coup d'état, found Saint-Arnaud the very man to suit the purpose of his master. Saint-Arnaud was tall, thin, and bony, with close-cropped hair. De Morny used to laugh behind his back at the way he said le peuple souverain, and said he knew as little about the sovereign people as about the pronunciation. He spoke English well, for he had lived for some years an exile in Leicester Square, the disreputable French quarter of London. This accomplishment was of great service to him during the Crimean War. De Maupas had been a country prefect, and was eager for promotion. Louis Napoleon converted him into his minister of police. Fleury was the simple-hearted and attached friend of his master. De Persigny, like Saint-Arnaud, had changed his name, having begun life as Fialin. These five plotted the coup d'état, arranged all its details, and kept their own counsel. The generals and colonels in garrison in Paris had been sounded, as we have seen, in reference to their allegiance to the great emperor's nephew, and by the close of 1851 all things had been made ready for the proposed coup d'état. A coup d'état is much the same thing as a coup de main. 
with this difference, that in the political coup de main it is the mob that takes the initiative, in the coup d'état the government, and the government generally has the army on its side. Louis-Napoleon and his five associates were about to do the most audacious thing in modern history, but no man can deny them the praise awarded to the unjust steward. If the thing was to be done, or in the language of Victor Hugo, if the crime was to be committed, it could not have been more admirably planned or more skilfully executed. The world, to all appearance, went on in its usual way. The Assembly, on December 1, 1851, was busy discussing the project of a railroad to Lyon. That evening M. de Morny was at the Opéra Comique, in company with General Changarnier, and the Prince-President was doing the honours as usual in his reception-room at the Élysée. His visage was as calm, his manners were as conciliatory and affable as usual. No symptoms of anything extraordinary were to be seen, and an approaching municipal election in Paris accounted for the arrival of several estafettes and couriers, which from time to time called the Prince-President from the room. When the company had taken leave, St. Arnaud, Maupas, Morny, and a colonel on the staff went with the Prince-President into his smoking-room, where the duties of each were assigned to him. Everything was to be done by clockwork. Exactly at the hour appointed all the African generals and several of their friends were to be arrested. Exactly at the moment indicated, troops were to move into position. At so many minutes past six a.m. all the printing offices were to be surrounded. Every man who had in any way been prominent in politics since the days of Louis-Philippe was to be put under arrest. By seven o'clock in the morning all this had been accomplished. The Parisians awoke to find their walls placarded by proclamations signed by Prince Louis-Napoleon as President, de Morny as Minister of the Interior, de Maupas as Prefect of Police, and St. Arnaud as Minister of War. These proclamations announced, 1. The dissolution of the Assembly. 2. The restoration of universal suffrage. 3. A general election on December 14. 4. The dissolution of the Council of State. 5 that Paris was in a state of siege. This last meant that any man might be arrested, without warrant, at the pleasure of the police. Another placard forbade any printer, on pain of death, to print any placard not authorized by government, and death likewise was announced for any one who tore down a government placard. Louis-Napoleon followed this up by an appeal to the people. He said he wished the people to judge between the assembly and himself. If France would not support him, she must choose another president. In place of the Constitution of 1848, he proposed one that should make the presidential term of office ten years. He also proposed that the president's cabinet should be of his own selection. Louis-Napoleon had entire confidence that all elections by universal suffrage would be in his favour. He had just made extensive tours in the provinces, and had been received everywhere with enthusiasm. Thus far I have given the historical outline of the story, but if we look into Victor Hugo's Histoire d'un crime, and disentangle its facts from its hysterics, we may receive from his personal narrative a vivid idea of what passed in Paris from the night of December 1, 1851, to the evening of December 4, when all was over. Roused early in the morning by members of the Assembly, who came to announce the events of the night, Victor Hugo, to whom genuine Republicans who were not socialists looked as a leader, was, like all the rest of Paris, taken completely by surprise. One of his visitors was a working-man, a wood-carver. Of him Hugo eagerly asked, quote, What do the working-men, the people, say as they read the placards? End quote. 
he answered, quote, Some say one thing, some another. The thing has been so done that they cannot understand it. Men going to their work are reading the placards. Not one in a hundred says anything, and those who do say generally, Good, universal suffrage is re-established. The conservative majority in the assembly is got rid of. That's splendid. Thiers is arrested. Better still. Changarnier is in prison. Bravo. Beneath every placard there are men placed to lead the approval. My opinion is that the people will approve. At exactly six that morning, Cavaignac, Changarnier, La Mauricière, Thiers, and all those who had lain down to sleep as cabinet ministers of the prince-president, were roused from their beds by officers of cavalry, with orders to dress quickly, for they were under arrest. Before each door a hackney-coach was waiting, and an escort of two hundred lancers was in a street nearby. Resistance seemed useless in the face of such precautions. But Victor Hugo and his friends were resolved upon a fight. They put their official scarves as deputies into their pockets, and started forth to see if they could raise the Faubourg Saint-Antoine. But their friend the woodcarver had told them truly. There was neither sympathy nor enthusiasm in the streets for the constitution that had fallen, the deputies who had been placed under arrest, nor for violated political institutions. In vain they appealed to the people in the name of the law. The mob seemed to consider that provided it had universal suffrage, and that the man of its choice were at the head of affairs, it had better trust the safety of the nation to one man than risk the uncertainties that might attend the tyranny of many. The frantic efforts made that day by Victor Hugo and a few other deputies of the left to rouse the populace are almost ludicrous. Victor Hugo, no doubt, was a brave man, though a very melodramatic one, and he seems to have thought that if he could get the soldiers to shoot him, him, the greatest literary star of France since the death of Voltaire, the notoriety of his death might rouse the population. Here is one scene in his narrative. He and three of his friends, finding that the Faubourg Saint-Antoine gave no ear to their appeals, and for once was disinclined to fight, decided to return home, and took seats in an omnibus which passed them on the Place de la Bastille. Quote, we were all glad to get in, says Victor Hugo. I took it much to heart that I had not that morning, when I saw a crowd assembled round the Porte Saint-Martin, shouted, To arms! The omnibus started. I was sitting at the end on the left. My friend, young Armand, was beside me. As the omnibus moved on, the crowd became more closely packed upon the boulevard. When we reached the narrow ascent near the Porte Saint-Martin, a regiment of heavy cavalry met us. The men were cuirassiers. Their horses were in a trot, and their swords were drawn. All of a sudden the regiment came to a halt. Something was in their way. Their halt detained the omnibus. My heart was stirred. Close before me, a yard from me, were Frenchmen turned into Mamelukes, citizen-supporters of the Republic transformed into the mercenaries of a second empire. From my seat I could almost put my hand upon them. I could no longer bear the sight. I let down the glass. I put my head out of the window and looked steadily at the close line of armed men. Then I shouted, Down with Louis Bonaparte! Those who serve traitors are traitors! The nearest soldiers turned their faces towards me and looked dazed with astonishment. The rest did not stir. When I shouted, Armand let down his glass and thrust half his body out of his window, shaking his fist at the soldiers. He too cried out, Down with all traitors! Our example was contagious. Down with traitors! cried my other two friends in the omnibus. Down with the dictator! cried a generous young man who sat beside me. All the passengers in the omnibus, except this young man, seemed to be filled with terror. Hold your tongues! they cried. You will have us all massacred! The most frightened of them let down his glass and shouted to the soldiers, Vive le prince Napoleon! 
Vive l'Empereur! The soldiers looked at us in solemn silence. A mounted policeman menaced us with his drawn sword. The crowd seemed stupefied. The soldiers had no orders to act, so nothing came of it. The regiment started at a gallop, so did the omnibus. As long as the cuirassiers were passing, Armand and I, hanging half out of our windows, continued to shout at them, Down with the dictator! This foolhardy and melodramatic performance was one of many such scenes, calculated to turn tragedy into farce. Meantime, from early morning, the hall of the representatives had been surrounded by soldiers with mortars and cannon. As the deputies arrived, they were allowed to pass the gates, but were not permitted to enter their chamber. Their president, or speaker, M. Dupin, was appealed to. He said he could do nothing. It was hopeless to resist such a display of force. At last the representatives, becoming, as the soldiers put it, quote, noisy and troublesome, end quote, were collared and turned out into the street. One by one the most excited were arrested. The remainder decided to go to the High Court of Justice and demand a warrant to depose and arrest the Prince-President. But they could not find the judges. They had hidden themselves away. When at last they succeeded in discovering the place where they were sitting, the police followed closely on their track, and the judges were forced to shut up their court and march off under a guard of soldiers. The representatives then decided to go to the mairie of the 10th arrondissement, and there reorganize into a legislative body. They were nearly all members belonging to the right, but they were as indignant as the left at the outrage. They formed into a column, marching two and two abreast, but the left would not march with the right, so they proceeded in two parallel columns, one on each side of the way. Arrived at the mairie, they made Jules de Lasterie, Lafayette's grandson, president pro tempore, and proceeded to pass a decree deposing Louis Bonaparte. Scarcely was this done when a battalion of cavalry arrived, and the legislators soon perceived that they were prisoners. After a great deal of altercation with the soldiers, they were marched off to a barrack-yard on the Quai d'Orsay. When all this was reported to de Morny, he remarked, quote, it is well, but they are the last deputies who will be made prisoners, meaning that any others would be shot. It was half-past three when the deputies were locked into the barrack-yard. The December day was cold and frosty, the sky overcast. The first thing they did was to call the roll. There were two hundred and twenty of them, out of a total membership of seven hundred and fifty. Among them were many of the best and most conservative men of France. There was Jules Grévy, the future president, M. Thiers was already in prison, Jules de Lasterie, Saint-Beuve, the great critic, Berrier, the great lawyer, the Duc de Luynes, the richest man in France, and Odillon Barrault, the popular idol at the commencement of the late Revolution. De Tocqueville was there, the great writer on America, General Oudinot, and several other generals, the Duc de Broglie, great-grandson of Madame de Stael, Eugène Sue, the novelist, Coquerel, the French Protestant preacher, and M. de Rémusat, the son of that lady who has given us her experiences of the court of the first Napoleon. For two hours the deputies remained in the open air. Then they were transferred at dark to the third story of a wing of the barracks. They found themselves in two long halls, with low ceilings and dirty walls, used as the soldiers' dormitories. They had no furniture but some wooden benches. M. de Tocqueville was quite ill. The rooms were bitterly cold. An hour or so later, three representatives, who had demanded to share the fate of their colleagues, were brought in. One of these was the Marquis de la Valette, who had married Mrs. Wells, a very beautiful and fascinating American lady. Night came. Most of the prisoners had eaten nothing since morning. A collection of five francs apiece was taken up amongst them, 
and a cold collation was provided by a neighboring restaurant. They ate standing, with their plates in their hands, quote, just like a supper at a ball, remarked one of the younger ones. They had very few drinking glasses. Right and left, having been reconciled by this time, drank together. Equality and fraternity, remarked a conservative nobleman as he drank with one of the Red Republicans. Quote, ah, was the answer, but not liberty. End quote. Eight more prisoners before long were added to their number, and three were released. One because he was eighty, one because of his wife's illness, and one because he had been accidentally wounded. At last, sixty mattresses were brought in for two hundred and twenty-five men. They had no blankets, and had to trust to their greatcoats to keep them from the cold. A few of them went to sleep, but were roused at midnight by an order that their quarters must be changed. They were taken down by parties to all the voitures cellulaires, or Black Maria's, in Paris. Each deputy was put into a separate cell, where he sat cramped and freezing for hours. It was nearly 7 a.m., December 3, before these prison vans were ready to start. Some went to the great prison of Mazas, some to Vincennes, some to Fort Valérien. At Mazas they were treated in all respects like criminals, except that they were not allowed a daily walk, a privilege the knaves and malefactors obtained. Two deputies only were favoured with beds, M. Thiers and another elderly man. M. Grévy had none, nor the African generals, the ex-dictator Cavagnac among them. Such of the members of the left as were not in prison spent December 2, 3, and 4 in endeavouring to assemble and reorganise the remains of the assembly, but the police followed them up too closely. A few barricades were raised, and the first man killed on one of them was named Baudin. He threw away his life recklessly and to no purpose, but it is the fashion among advanced republicans to this day to decorate his grave and to honour his memory with communistic speeches. He was rather a fine young fellow, and might have lived to do the state some service. By the night of December 3 there was a good deal of commotion in the city. Two days of disorganization, idleness, and excitement had made workmen more inflammable than when they remained passive under the appeals of Victor Hugo. The remainder of the story, so far as it concerns the uprising and massacre in the streets of Paris, I will borrow from the experience of an American eye-witness. But first I will tell what happened to the African generals imprisoned at Mazas. On the night of December 3, the station of the great railroad to the north was filled with soldiers. About six o'clock the next morning, two voitures cellulaires drove up, each attended by a light carriage containing an especial agent sent by the police. These vehicles, just as they were, were rolled on to trucks, and the train moved out of the station. There were eight cells in each voiture cellulaire. Four were occupied by prisoners, four by policemen. It was bitterly cold, and in the second of the prison vans the police, half-frozen, opened the doors of their cells and came out to walk up and down and warm themselves. Then a voice was heard from one of the prisoners. Quote, ah, ça, it is bitterly cold here. Couldn't one be allowed to relight one's cigar? End quote. At this another voice called out, quote, Tiens, is that you, La Mauricière? Good morning. Quote, Good morning, Cavagnac, replied the other. Then a third voice came from the third cell. It was that of Changarnier. Quote, Messieurs les généraux, cried a fourth, do not forget that I am one of you. End quote. The speaker was a Kester of the Chamber of Deputies, a man charged with the safety of the National Assembly. The generals who had spoken, and Bedeau, who was in the next van, were, with the exception of Bugeaud, the four leading commanders in the French army. The other four prisoners were Colonel Charat, General Le Flot, Baz de Kester, and a deputy, Count Roger, du Nord. 
At midnight they had been roused from sleep and ordered to dress immediately. Quote, "'Are we going to be shot?' asked Charat, but no answer was vouchsafed him. They were put into the voiture cellulaire, each knowing nothing of the presence of the others. Even the police who were in charge of them had no idea what prisoners they had in custody. After this recognition between the generals, they were permitted to come out of their cells and walk up and down the van to warm themselves, taking care, however, that they were not seen at liberty by the special agents in the carriages attending on each van. On reaching Ham, the former prison of Louis-Napoleon, Cavaignac, whom he had succeeded as ruler of France, was put into his former chamber. « Chassez, croissez, said de Morny, when the report was made to him. December 4, the last day of the struggle, was by far the most terrible. Louis-Napoleon, in spite of many benefits which France and the world owe him, will never be cleansed from the stain that the outrages of that day have left upon his memory. It may be said, however, that the details of the coup d'état were left to his subordinates, and that probably both success and infamy are due in large part to the flippant Morny. It was a cold, drizzling day. Such barricades as had been built were very slimly defended, and with no enthusiasm. The insurgents were short of ammunition, nor did the troops attack them with much vigour. In fact, the soldiers were but few, for all were being concentrated on that part of the boulevard where strangers do their shopping and eat ices at Tortoni's. The programme for that day was not fighting, but a massacre. The American gentleman whose narrative I am about to quote says, quote, On December 3 there was more excitement in the streets than there had been on December 2. The secret societies had got to work. The Reds were recovering from their astonishment. Ex-members of the National Assembly had harangued the multitude and circulated addresses calculated to rouse the people to resistance. On the 4th there was not much stirring. The shops were closed. I went into the heart of the city on business, where I soon found myself in the midst of a panic-stricken crowd. The residents were closing their doors and barricading their windows. Some said the faubourgs were rising, some that the troops were approaching, with cannon. Hearing there were barricades at the Porte Saint-Denis, I pushed directly for the spot. The work was going on bravely. Stagings had been torn from unfinished houses, iron railings from the magnificent gateway, trees were cut down, street sheds demolished, carts, carriages, and omnibuses were being triumphantly dragged from hiding-places to the monstrous pile. There were not very many men at work, but those who were engaged laboured like beavers. Blouses and broadcloth were about equally mixed. A few men armed with cutlasses, muskets, and pistols appeared to act as leaders. Soon a search was made in neighbouring houses for arms. I was surprised to see how many boys were in the ranks of the insurgents. They went to work as if insurrection were a frolic. I shuddered as I thought how many of them would be shot or bayoneted before night fell. The sentiments of the spectators seemed different. Some said, let them go ahead, they want to plunder and kill, they will soon be taught a good lesson. Others encouraged the barricade-makers. One man, hearing that I was an American, said with a sigh, Oh, you live in a true republic. After remaining two hours at this barricade and seeing no fighting, I turned on to the boulevard. There troops were advancing slowly, with loaded cannon. From time to time they charged the people, who slipped out of the way by side streets, as I did myself. Coming back on the boulevard des Italiens, I found the entire length of the boulevard, from the Porte Saint-Denis to the Madeleine, filled with troops in order of battle. In the novelty and beauty of the scene I quite lost sight of danger. At one time they chased away the crowd, but soon sentinels were removed from the corners of the streets, and as many spectators as thought proper pressed on to the sidewalks of the boulevard. Opposite to me was the Seventh Lancers, a fine corps, recently arrived in Paris. 
Suddenly, at the upper end of the line, the discharge of a cannon was heard, followed by a blaze of musketry and a general charge. The spectators on the boulevard took to flight. They pitched into open doors, or loudly demanded entrance at the closed ones. I was fortunate enough to get into a neighbouring carriageway, through the grated porte-cochère of which I could see what was going on. The firing was tremendous. Volley after volley followed so fast that it seemed like one continued peal of thunder. Suddenly there was a louder and a nearer crash. The cavalry in front of me wavered, and then, as if struck by a panic, turned and rushed in disorder down the street, making the ground tremble under their tread. What could have occurred? In a few minutes they came charging back, firing their pistols on all sides. Then came a quick succession of orders. Shut all windows, keep out of sight, open the blinds, etc. It seemed that unexpected shots had been fired from some of the windows, on the soldiers, from which they had suffered so much as to cause a recoil. The roll of firearms was now terrific. Mortars and cannon were fired at short range point-blank at the suspicious houses, which were then carried by assault. The rattle of small shot against windows and walls was incessant. This, too, was in the finest part of the boulevard. Costly houses were completely riddled, their fronts were knocked in, their floors pierced with balls. The windows throughout the neighborhood were destroyed by the concussion of the cannon. Of the hair-breadth escape of some of the inmates and of the general destruction of property I need not speak. The government afterwards footed all the bills for the last. The firing continued for more than an hour, and then receded to more distant parts of the city, for the field of combat embraced an area of several miles, and there were forty thousand troops engaged in it. As soon as I could do so with safety, I left my covert and endeavoured to see what had happened elsewhere. But troops guarded every possible avenue, and fired on all those who attempted to approach any interdicted spot. I noticed some pools of blood, but the corpses had been removed. In a cross-street I saw a well-dressed man gasping his life away on a rude stretcher. Those around him told me he had six balls in him. In the Rue Richelieu there was the corpse of a young girl. Somebody had placed lighted candles at its head and feet. When I reached the parts of the town removed from the surveillance of the soldiers, I noticed a bitter feeling among the better classes for the day's work. The slaughter had been amongst those of their own class, which was unusual. The number slain was at first, of course, exaggerated, but it was with no gratifying emotions that we could reduce it a few hundreds. It was civil war, fratricide. I reached home indignant and mournful. Victor Hugo says of the massacre, quote, There were no combatants on the side of the people. There could not be said to have been any mob, though the boulevard was crowded with spectators. Then, as the wounded and terrified rushed into houses, the soldiers rushed in after them. Tortoni's was gutted. The fashionable baths of Jouvence were torn to pieces. One hotel was demolished. Twenty-eight houses were so injured that they had next day to be pulled down. Peaceful shopkeepers, dressmakers, and English strangers were among the slain. An old man with an umbrella, a young man with an opera-glass. In the house where Jovin sold gloves there was a pile of dead bodies. The firing was over by 4 p.m. It has never been known how many were massacred. Some said twenty-five hundred, some made it five hundred and almost every person killed was, not a red combatant, but an innocent victim. Thus Louis-Napoleon made himself master of Paris. The army was all for him, the masses were apathetic, the rural population was on his side. A few weeks later a plebiscite made him emperor. The coup d'état having succeeded, most Frenchmen gave in their adhesion to its author. It remained only to dispose of the prisoners. Without any preliminary investigation, squads of them were shot, chiefly in the courtyard of the prefecture of police. 
all deputies of the left were sent into exile except some who were imprisoned in algerine fortresses or sent to cayenne the french political penal colony at that period victor hugo remained a fortnight in hiding believing on the authority of alexandre dumas that a price was set upon his head he gives some moving accounts of little children whom he saw lying in their blood on the evening of the massacre his chief associates nearly all escaped arrest and got away from france in various disguises their adventures are all of them very picturesque and some are very amusing several of the eight prisoners at ham suffered much from dampness la mauriciere indeed contracted permanent rheumatism during his imprisonment he begged earnestly to be allowed to write to his wife but was permitted to send her only three words without date quote, i am well on the night of january sixth the commandant of the fortress in full uniform accompanied by a government agent entered the sleeping-room of each prisoner and ordered him to rise and dress as he was to be sent immediately into exile under the charge of two agents of police detailed to accompany him over the frontier nor was he to travel under his own name a travelling alias having been provided for him at the railroad station at creil colonel charat met changarnier tiens general he cried is that you i am travelling under the name of vincent quote, and i replied changarnier am called leblanc each was placed with his two police agents in a separate carriage the latter were armed their orders were to treat their prisoners with respect but in case of necessity to shoot them the journey was made without incident until they reached valenciennes a place very near the frontier line between france and belgium there as the coup d'etat had proved a success official zeal was in the ascendancy the police commissioner of valenciennes examined the passports as he was taking leblanc's into his hand he recognized the man before him he started and cried out quote, you are general changarnier quote, that is no affair of mine at present said the general at once the police agents interposed and assured the commissioner that the passports were all in order nothing they could say would convince him of the fact the prefect and town authorities proud of their own sagacity in capturing state prisoners who were endeavouring to escape from france held them in custody while they sent word of their exploit to paris they at once received orders to put all the party on the train for belgium charat was liberated at brussels changarnier at mons la mauriciere was carried to cologne m baz to aix-la-chapelle they were not released at the same place nor at the same time louis napoleon having said that safety required that a space should be put between the generals End of chapter 8 End of section 12